You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Wade, I know that the rest of your family is probably going to be really upset with me for telling you this, but I just can't hold the secret in any longer. You're dying. Okay, okay, Kevin. So I I actually have a secret too. And you're also going to die. This is like the worst adaptation of Gift of the Magi ever. (laughs) Today in the episode, we're reviewing Lulu Wong's new film, The Farewell. Also on the show this week, we're going to be reviewing a film that was in theaters and is just now hitting streaming. That's Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir. It's the Battle of the V's here on this episode, episode 212 of Seeing and Believing. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. Manette is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. We have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Don't you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. If you go, Nana will find out right away. We are here, episode 212 of Seeing and Believing. And I gotta say this, Kevin. After bouncing back and forth these last few months between big budget blockbusters, it's somewhat refreshing to review two, not just one, but two smaller films in one week. We're back. We're back, Kevin. (laughs) I mean, it is the August doldrums when the blockbusters that weren't good enough for June and July kind of get dumped. So I'm glad that we had two films to sort of fill the void there. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. Our first segment begins with a look at Lulu Wong's The Farewell, Based on the screenplay by Wong herself, The Farewell follows a Chinese family who has just discovered that their grandmother, Nene, only has a short time left to live. Together, the family launches a covert plan to visit their matriarch one last time without revealing to her the state of her health. Instead, they'd rather her live out the rest of her days in ignorance rather than fear. At the center of the story sits Billy, played by Aquafina, Nene's independent granddaughter who struggles with keeping the devastating news from her dying loved one. As friends and family members arrive for the farewell, the result is an emotional and sometimes awkward visit, one that forces Billy to reconcile both her Chinese heritage and her American upbringing. I've been looking forward to this film for a while now. So glad to, to you know finally get to see it. Kevin, we're going to talk about all the details in this movie or some of the details in this movie as much as we can fit in. Uh, but first, I want to ask you a simple question. It's kind of a personal question. But did The Farewell make you think of your relationship with, with your grandparents? You know, I, that was something that as I was watching this film, it was it was interesting to think about that question because one of the things that makes the farewells so interesting at least for a uh, a white guy like me is is understanding a, a family that's very different from my own and a family type that does not often make it into 
uh, theatrical release in most American theaters. This is a very, even though uh, Wong herself is, you know, is American and the uh, surrogate for her in this film is, is also American. This is a film that's just very steeped in Chinese culture and specifically a Chinese vision of family. So it was fun to sit there and watch this film and be both a little bit uh, at sea in terms of the cultural things, in terms of the the mores, the ways that the family interactions played out, and compare them to my own family, but also just to to lose myself in that different perspective and uh, enjoy where it was taking me and enjoy simply not having a very good idea of where it was taking me because I'm so used to the sorts of stories that... Uh, people of my background would be telling, if that makes sense. So I don't know that there was a whole lot of me seeing my myself or, or my grandparents uh, in a one-to-one comparison while watching this film, but I think that made me appreciate it even more. Yeah, and I think what I what I really liked about this movie is, it's kind of like what you mentioned, I, I could see pieces of my grandparents who are, who are all gone now. I, I see pieces in this story but it is a story outside of my purview. And I, I, I loved kind of just walking around with these characters and getting to know their culture and just some of the, you know, just the smaller details and forgetting something so little like, oh, yeah, whenever I was in Asia, you, you know, you put your, your hotel key card in this little slot and it turns on the lights and the AC and all of that. And just forgetting about that and then seeing it on screen and just these these ways that the families, they interact with one another and they talk to one another and they speak to one another. There's this connection point, but then also something that's, that's very different that I'm not used to. And so I, I really did enjoy being with these characters. And I think something that surprised me, I, I actually didn't watch a trailer for this film, just read some thoughts from people, of course, kind of kept up with a general idea of where critics were at with the movie. And so coming in, I realized, okay, yeah, this is going to be sad, right? But I didn't realize how funny this movie uh, would be. And I, I, Kevin, I actually found myself just kind of laughing out loud at parts, not just kind of this, you know, short giggle or cackle or whatever it is, just, but just really kind of laughing out loud. And I appreciate the way the film kind of balances that out, knowing that even in these kind of sad moments, there are those, humorous moments and life is kind of mixed up like that isn't it it's you know you can have sadness in the midst of a a good time Uh, you can also have uh humor uh, or joy even in the midst of a bad time so i really love kind of that balance uh within this movie and it just it really kind of made it pop and it brought it to life for me yeah there's a lot of affection in this movie maybe affectionate would be the adjective that first comes to mind when when watching this film, you know, mostly because obviously uh, Wong is, feels a lot of love for her own family, and that comes through in the way that she has written them for this film. This is, according to to her in multiple interviews, this is a somewhat lightly adapted uh, version of real events. You know, the the opening title card says this is based on a true lie. 
Um, and some of the, the minor characters were even played by people who are actually part of Wong's uh, family circle or circle of friends in real life. And that both infuses this film with uh, you know, a real affection for, for the characters and brings the audience into that. But it also frees Wong to lightly poke fun at some of the personalities and some of the traditions that are so ingrained in her family. And it's the sort of story that you feel really thankful for that she's telling because it's not sort of the kind of thing that you see in, in for instance, uh, a film like Lost in Translation, which is a film I love, but is definitely uh, the perspective of a white person in Japan kind of being at sea among all these Japanese people, and everything is tinged with a sense of of otherness, you know, that things are funny because they're weird through Western eyes. And the comedy and the farewell, by contrast, the the stuff that we see is kind of weird, but it's not weird because it's different. It's weird because Wong has done the work to really, you know, think about it, uh, unpack what it means and how these traditions and uh, cultural assumptions kind of take root. And then that kind of allows her to sort of peel them back and discover both the very strong emotion and also some of the absurdity that underlies it all. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, watching this movie, there definitely is this tension between the uh, the collectivism of this Chinese culture and the individualism of America. And Aquafina's character, Billy, definitely, she kind of fights that because she was born and she was raised through a short section of her life in China. And then she moved to America and she is, she is independent and she's very different from some of her family members. And so she struggles with the idea of, well, should we tell my grandmother or, or should we not tell my grandmother? And throughout the film, we do get that tension. Uh, there are arguments about characters who chose to move to America versus staying with family or move to Japan without instead of staying with family and how that shaped them, how that changed them. Uh, the idea that one character even puts it, you know, in the West, everybody's kind of individual. They're, you know, they're alone. They are by themselves. And here we see life as part of something bigger or, or grander. And we see some critique of this, this collectivism. We also see critique of the individualism, uh, in America. And we also see some, some common ground. And what I, what I love about Wong's work here is she doesn't necessarily come down hard in one direction. We see the pros, we see the cons, but we even see these, these particular pieces of culture that are maybe not necessarily good or bad, but different in that maybe we don't have to choose between one or the other. Maybe it's a decision based on the culture or based on what we, we want to do. We don't have to choose a moral decision. And so th there's, there's this fascinating kind of look at the disconnect 
that many Americans face, and particularly Billy's character faces. Uh, but also there's this freedom and there's this independence that can be very good. And then this the the joy of belonging within the this culture in China, uh, but also things are done very differently. And there are these really interesting shots of of apartments, and they all kind of look the same. And it reminded me of some shots in Hirokazu Koreeda's After the Storm, but they're these these almost cookie cutter apartments and we see them from the outside and we we get the sense that everything is a part of the whole and there's a joy there but within these images wong seems to also communicate that when one person does pass away within within this it somebody else moves in and they kind of move along and there's there's this comfort knowing that the universe doesn't revolve around us but there's also this discomfort knowing that the world's going to go on without us. So I really love the the visual motifs with uh, with this film and how Wong kind of communicates that just by looking at some of the, even just the architecture here where these people go and, and visit and, and you know uh, Billy visits her grandmother. Yeah, that and that visual motif also eventually comes through in the dialogue itself. There's. A, a really great scene that kind of does what you're talking about, the um, the disconnect between a Western view of death and family and a Chinese uh, vision of death and the family. So uh, Billy is having a, a conversation, maybe more like an argument with her uncle, uh, who is also kind of has moved away from... Uh, his mother, who they're, you know, they're all there to see, but who doesn't uh, live anywhere close to where Billy and her family ended up in the United States. And she's trying to understand why everybody is orchestrating this deception for uh, her grandmother. And her uncle tells her, you think one's life belongs to oneself. And he's talking about kind of the Americanized version of the way that Billy sees things. He says, you think one's life belongs to oneself. In the East, one life belongs to the whole. And that just is just such a uh, an insightful way of really explaining the the base, the entire deception that's going throughout this entire film is that it's not really just about doing what's best for Nainai, as they keep saying. It's also about doing what's best for the entire family and making sure that their last memories of her aren't tinged by you know this this deep sorrow over her her death coming and they're all kind of like just trying to put a brave face on it in in their culture it's it's better rather than trying to force it and put a brave face on it it's better to just not really acknowledge it and enjoy each other's presence uh while it happens so even though Nina isn't living under uh, living her life knowing the full truth about what her true reality is in a way that's her sacrificing something for the rest of the family rather than everybody trying to sacrifice themselves and subordinate themselves to making her comfortable in her last day, so to speak. It's a really interesting flip on what uh, Americans are used to 
doing when approaching death. And it's something that, like you said, is borne out in multiple ways. Just this this idea of community as something that is so important, it has to be preserved at all costs rather than be ruptured by death, at least until the, the, the last bitter end. And it's this kind of beautiful look at these individuals carrying emotional burdens for each other. And, and that is really kind of just wonderful. And we get this sense of belonging too through food. Uh, the food is, is a, I mean, it looks great on the screen. The characters are kind of always eating and it reminds you of the power of feasting. And of course, you know, for those of us who are Christians and study the Bible, feasting is such a big deal. And feasting in scriptures is kind of this precursor for the joy and celebration when everything's set right. So it's like, okay, we're doing this now as a precursor. And so especially when Jesus would gather with these individuals that were seen as quote unquote sinners, everybody's like, well, you know, he's, he's celebrating like it's the, like it's the end of time and he's with these people. Are these people going to be a part of the kingdom of God? We see that kind of joy. And I, I really love watching this picture and seeing the joy that comes with just cooking food and eating food. And I'll mention, I'll mention, uh, Hirokazu Koreeda again, because he does a fantastic job of that in his his films and it's it's just kind of great to see that visually too if we're talking about some of the motifs and dialogue here to see that i kevin was just kind of really blown away by aquafina and her performance here it's so good she's really really funny the characters our parents they tell her hey we don't want you to go to china because you can't control your emotions. And that kind of gets back to the humor of the film. It's just kind of low-key, dry humor. And she's like, she knows it. She knows, oh, I have trouble with this. And so when she does go, and she is trying so hard to hold this in, and everybody's just, they're, they're like, oh, no, it's about to come out. And she just, she does a fantastic job with that performance. She's She's so funny. I love the dialogue between her and her grandmother. It's just... It's, it's tender and it's, uh, and it's funny. I, I liked Aquafina in Crazy Rich Asians. I think she was the best part. She was really funny there. Uh, I liked, I liked Oceans 8, though the film kind of forgot about her throughout the movie, but it's really cool to see her play in this role, this drama. And of course, keep, keep the humor that she's known for, uh, in her, in her acting career and, and really kind of push that further. And she gives this speech, Kevin. It's the speech, uh, she's talking to her mom, it's near the end of the film. I won't go into too much detail, but characters are kind of getting ready for a wedding in the background, and she talks about her grandfather and coming to America, and it's, it's great. It's one of the best, I think, di- lines of dialogue and the performance, dialogue performance, uh, uh, of the year. She's just so, so good, brought tears to my eyes, just really bringing out this deep, emotion that she's been holding in and uh yeah gives a great performance here and it's and it's a weird kind of uh suspense to it right like even though it is a very heartfelt scene and there there are many other scenes where we see 
Billy and Nai interacting. And the entire time you're aware that Billy has this giant secret that she's doing her best to, to conceal. It's almost a, uh, a very uniquely Chinese twist on the, the old Hitchcock dictum of the bomb under the table. You know, if the bomb goes off, that's action. But if the bomb doesn't go off, that's suspense. And this entire film is like the secret of Nai terminal cancer is the bomb under the table. And the entire film is, is taken uh, up with us watching these characters just do their best to keep that bomb from exploding. And the tension, especially for Billy, who cares very deeply for her grandmother and doesn't like uh, pulling the the wool over her eyes, that is uh, an especially compelling tension that makes even the humor scenes kind of have this extra little little fizz of of emotional weight in addition to just it's humorous to see a character you know struggle against something that they're they're not very good at hiding that's an inherently humorous concept it's also an inherently suspenseful one and by the end of the film it's a um it's a very emotional one as well no and it's good i love i love that Hitchcock reference there and I, I think too with uh, with the film so we're talking also about the individualism and the collectivism and I like how the movie includes details about these characters lives but it doesn't allow them those problems to overwhelm any of the scenes or the movie so Billy's character at the very beginning we see that she has not uh, received an opportunity that she wanted and it kind of crops up, and we know that's weighing on her mind. We know she has financial problems. And it's there, but that doesn't become the story. And I, I, I think I, I appreciate that because it could have been easy to make one of those issues the big one and to make the movie about that and her overcoming that. But it adheres to the idea of community by saying hey we have problems there are marital problems that are talked about alcohol problems that are talked about we have these problems but they sometimes have to fade to the background because of where we are in life so i i appreciated the way the story took that and yeah i mean i'll say again it, it's just a really funny uh film there's a, a sequence where uh, Billy's cousin and his so-called fiance, they're taking these wedding photos and we get them kind of just in the background and Billy is having a conversation with her grandmother and it, the dialogue is great. She's, she's so tender and loving. The grandmother is, uh, but at the same time, she's also like, well, why, you know, why aren't you married yet? Or why aren't, you know, this yet? And, Yet, Billy doesn't take that the wrong way. And it, it's a good example of, of a loving grandparent relationship. And it's, it's nice to see that on screen. Yeah, we even, haven't even talked about the, the pretense for bringing the entire family together, which is surrounding, you know, this, this cousin and his girlfriend who don't really have any plans, any concrete plans to marry anyway, but they have to, 
uh, kind of like hurry things along in order to have this pretense for all the family to to gather together. So there's there's kind of that hanging over over the proceedings, and as things go further, and that you know the the wedding day approaches, the way that their knowledge of the real reason for the gathering is affecting their. Uh, believability as a happy couple who's just excited to get married is really a lot of fun to watch. I also really appreciated how there are some very uh, poetic touches that Wong brings to this film. I'm thinking specifically of a recurring motif of birds that keep appearing in unlikely places. A couple of times in the film, Billy uh, you know, enters uh, her apartment or her, her hotel room only to find that a bird has somehow made its way into the room, either through an open window or maybe even through a mechanism that she's not entirely sure how it happened. And that's such a, a gentle way for Wang to really add a touch of the spiritual to this film that is in a lot of ways very earthbound it's very concerned with the here and now of not wanting to lose someone forever to death this bird speaks of an awareness that death isn't all there is you know the the there's an absence when somebody dies but there's also something difficult to define that is left behind by by them after they pass on. And I really appreciate Wong having those touches in those couple of scenes throughout the film. And then basically the final shot of the film is this really nice little uh, bullet point to put on that entire motif that really wraps up the film effectively and also suggests... Um, a very welcome spiritual note in this uh, this uh, family drama. Yeah, and then just those poetic touches, like you mentioned, that add that spiritual component. And then also Wong is not afraid to have a little fun with it. Uh, there's one point where characters have to uh, covertly edit a document uh, to keep the ruse up. And uh, right after that, they're seen kind of walking in slow motion, something you would get maybe in an Ocean's Eleven film, like, oh, we just pulled, we pulled it off. <laughs> and uh, One last big job. <laughs> the yeah. last big job. It's, it's, so it's fun to see the visual poetry and at times almost thinking, oh, this is a little Ozu in a way. And I, I, I maybe a little Edward Yang in a way, but then also saying, oh, th- this is also a bit playful and, and, and fun and those nice fun touches uh, that are included there as well. Listeners, that is our review of The Farewell. It's not playing in too many theaters in my area, but the showing that I saw last night, uh, it was was great to see so many people there. So I would encourage you to definitely go see this movie. Let us know what you think. If you have a chance to check it out, make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod on Twitter, or seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com.
That song is Noia by Ha Tom. You know, we very much appreciate everyone who's taken an opportunity not to say farewell to seeing and believing, but to say hello to seeing and believing <laughs> via our Patreon campaign. When you support us on Patreon, you support our podcast, you keep this going. We review big films, we review small films, and everything in between. It's really easy to do. We've got a couple of levels, uh, donation levels. One of them we really like is the what can you buy for $5 level. And Kevin, I'm thinking about that. I wanted to ask you this question. What can you buy for five bucks? Five bucks would buy you the secret of a stranger that you can keep for them. So you've heard about like that. There's that website uh, post secret. That was a big thing a while ago where people would just, you know, send a postcard into a a PO box with a deep, dark secret written on the postcard. And then it would get posted on a blog. Remember those? Um, I don't think post secret is still around anymore. I might just have not really visited it in a while, but you can bring that back for $5. Just uh, spend those those five bucks, send them to a P.O. box, and they'll send you a stranger secret, and you can be in on that particular secret. I've never heard of that. <laughs> You've never heard of Post Secret? I've oh, man. I've never heard of it. It sounds it was, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was actually a big deal if you were kind of a... Um, an angst-inclined college student who thought that that kind of thing was was artsy. You know, people like writing on a postcard like, sometimes I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know if I should be married. And you read that on the website and you're like, wow, that is so true. Even though you're like 19 years old and have never had, you know, like a serious problem. it's It was a big deal. I, oh, I am surprised that it did not... Uh, it was not a sensation in all places in the country. <laughs> oh man! Okay, that no. Let's bring it back for five bucks, and then, <laughs> and then after we've been thoroughly saturated in people's deep dark secrets, we can then take another five dollars and we can put it at. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still laughing about that. That sounds like a horrible idea. But we could take the five dollars <laughs> and we could put it towards our Patreon campaign, and we could give secrets, I guess. Like, maybe, yeah, like, hot takes, like, we don't like this movie that everybody else likes, or we like this movie that nobody else likes. I don't know. I don't know how dark we get, but it could get pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, well, you can, okay, so you can think of the evolution as, like, post-secret, way back when, that was sort of like the protozoa and the primordial soup, right? And then comes, you know, like the, the you know, very uncomfortably self-disclosing social media posts. That's sort of like uh, fish growing legs and coming out of that pool. And then this deal that we're just talking about will be the final evolution of a beautiful dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, listeners, you could go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Support us and we very much appreciate it. We'll give you our deepest, darkest secrets. <laughs> well, wait, you you may not be all that impressed by the, the concept of post-secret, but 
it did provide uh, a little bit of fodder for young me in college, like, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, short story ideas or whatnot. Fortunately, ChristinPopCulture.com uh, also allows you to become a member for $5 a month. And their gift for a for the budding writers in our midst is a discount meant specifically for writers. So every month, Christ and Pop Culture members get a special member offering. Usually it's a free book or a free album. This month, however, it's a 60% course discount to Mythos and Inc. Publishing's Writer's Course. This is a course specifically designed for people who are interested in writing uh, fantasy and sci-fi, writing in those genres, and it's focusing on things like structure, world building, for those genres. So the name of this course is Novel Structure According to Harry Potter. In KB Hoyle's write-up on the website, she describes it this way. Novel Structure According to Harry Potter is a 10-week course designed to instruct in the storytelling prowess of J.K. Rowling using Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone as the case study. Allison Alexander and writer-editor Kyla Neufeld act as both instructors and mentors for participants in the course, leading them through the 10 lessons of writing material, each one designed around a different aspect of the novel planning process based on the model set forth by the beloved first installment of the Harry Potter series. So if you're a big Harry Potter fan, or if you're a budding fantasy writer who just kind of needs a little bit of a kickstart, that sounds like a pretty good good deal to me, Wade. It does. It does. I do have to say this, Kevin. I just, while you're talking, I went to postseeker.com, and I'm done. I'm lost. I've gone down a dark hole. I saw one that says, I only have one armpit that grows hair. I'm out of here. But that sounds great from ChristinPopCulture.com. <laughs> I I guess Post Secret has improbably <laughs> gone down the drain. Who could have possibly guessed <laughs> that that would eventually uh, die out and become a shadow of its former self? Who could have known? I couldn't have known. But there it is. Listeners, if you want to get in on the seeing and believing... Uh, <laughs> post-secret train. You can send $5 per month our way. If a novel structure course based on Harry Potter is more your speed, become a member of Christ Pop Culture. Either way, you help support this podcast and all the other podcasts in the Christ and Pop Culture podcast network. We all really appreciate it. You came closer to me and took up more of the bed. And you already... I would say further over than I am. That's not true. It is true. No, it's not. I haven't got you that have much. bed dysmorphia. <laughs> and you, then you accuse me of... I wasn't trying to cross any sort of threshold. <laughs> I have not got that much room. You've got a foot on that side. That's and not I literally am on a ledge. We're back with the second half of our show, and during that break, Wade and I still had to hash out a little bit of the post-secret <laughs> uh, bombshell. We've been on a real emotional odyssey together, Wade, as we unpacked the 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 new frontier of mid-2000s internet for you. Kevin, here's the deal. I'm thinking about next week we should just start over and say episode one. 
because we have we've come a long way. It's this is a new this is a new Wade. This is a new it's, Wade. It's an an epochal development, sort of like the difference between BC before Christ <laughs> and Anno Domini BC and AD. Yeah, it's kind of like seeing and believing has entered a new phase before post secret after post secret. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I can't believe I hadn't heard about that. That's so funny. I mean, there's probably no. a ton of people who are like, "Man, wait!" I mean, everybody knows about that. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, just living you, under you've, a rock. You've, You've lost a lot of street cred. There's no two ways about it. Well, the film that we are going to be reviewing here in the second segment has nothing to do with post-secret. We're going to just kind of let that recede into the mists of the past. We're going to be talking about Joanna Hogg's latest film, The Souvenir. It follows a shy but ambitious film student, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, as she begins to find her voice as an artist while navigating a turbulent courtship with a charismatic but deeply untrustworthy man. She defies her protective mother, played by the great Tilda Swinton, who is also Honor Swinton Burns' mother in real life, and concerned friends as she slips deeper and deeper into an intense, emotionally fraught relationship that comes dangerously close to destroying her dreams. Wade, this is a very personal film for Joanna Hogg, at least in terms of its story. Uh, It's pretty well known that it's at least semi-autobiographical in some of its details. The official press notes for the film call it an enigmatic and personal portrait of the artist as a young woman, combining passionate emotions and exquisite aesthetics into a lush, dreamlike story of young adulthood and first love. So that's a pretty uh, glowing description from the press notes, Wade. My question for you is, were you taken in by the film on the grounds described by those press notes, or were you underwhelmed by this latest film? Yeah, so I I think those notes do a good job of kind of summarizing what this movie is trying to do. And I think for the most part, I agree. And I hate to, I I do like this movie. I hate to come out and immediately say, Hey, here's what I, here's what I didn't think it did. Well, Uh, I, I think where it says passionate, you know, this is a movie. It's a movie about a bad relationship. It's a movie about how even when we're in bad relationships, we remember these positive elements. We forget the negative ones we leave changed by the end of this relationship. How from the outside, everyone could be saying, Hey, you got it. You got to leave. And that's kind of what we're saying as an audience member. But there are highs and that's what we remember. And we also remember the lows. I, I think for me, this film didn't have as many highs as maybe it wanted it to. And so what I'm left with is kind of like just. Yeah, you need to leave this relationship and not necessarily seeing from this character's perspective the elements that keep her in this relationship. So I think that's probably my one critique of the movie that I think overall I mostly liked. How about you, Kevin? I liked this film quite a bit, and I don't know if it's because... Uh, you know, we recently finished our Stanley Kubrick marathon, so I just have Kubrick on the brain. But watching this film, I was really struck by the interiors of this film, specifically the, the fact that almost all of the scenes take place in indoors. There are very few outdoor shots, and we mostly uh, see the, the protagonist in these interiors rather than outdoors. And 
Joanna Hogg's ability to suggest an entire an entire life based on the way that say she decorates the apartment that that she lives in is really telling and um quite a good way a, a good barometer of the progression of her relationship with this uh with this young man that she takes up with and I think in a lot of ways, the other reason that I thought about Kubrick while watching this film is that in a, it doesn't really attempt to explicate the attraction that she feels for Antony, the guy, the, the boyfriend who comes into her life. He is kind of uh, condescending to her. He is... Uh, a drug addict. He lies to her. There's a lot of unattractive aspects to his personality. And yet for most of the film, she is really devoted to him and does her best to sort of uh, rationalize away his less savory qualities. And there's never really a reason given for that because Hogg is more interested in showing maybe vignettes from their life together, the time that they, they go to Venice or maybe a time that uh they they have a really brief discussion slash fight about the film that uh the main character is producing and all of these moments by themselves suggests a relationship that doesn't really make any sense but taken in aggregate you slowly see this this portrait of a fully fledged woman emerge through those and i think that's a really interesting way to build a character study piece and i think it works really well in this film well I, so i was checking out the review on RogerEbert.com by monica castillo and she has this line and i i copied it over because i wanted to read it she says david uh Redikers, i believe that's how you pronounce his name his cinematography has a soft quality to it as if the movie itself were a kind of memory that's no longer as sharp as it once was. And I really do love that line because this is a film that's made up of snapshots. There's one point in the movie where Julie's film professor talks about Hitchcock's Psycho and the infamous shower murder scene. And they discuss how we don't actually see the knife penetrating skin. We see the stab motions uh, we, of course, see the shower curtain being ripped away. We see the blood, or I guess it was chocolate syrup, but we see it going down the drain. And that tells us what we need to know. So what we're doing here is we're watching memories, and we're not seeing certain actions. We're seeing the aftermath of certain actions, or we're seeing things that happened directly before it. There's one scene where... We, we get a shot and in the background, a mirror that wasn't broken in the dining area is now broken. And we're kind of putting these pieces together. And, and as I'm thinking about this movie and I'm thinking about, hey, this is about a person developing as a person, kind of becoming her own person, uh, almost a look back at a relationship, then actually watching the relationship. 
and we get those we get those memories and i think there's some really good moments with tom burke's character the boyfriend uh, where he is kind of funny and they there is some there is some passion there i wish there was a little bit more uh, but it definitely feels like an individual trying to make sense of what happened and remembering fragments of what happened that seemed to tell a story in and of itself. And I appreciate that aspect of the movie. And I, I think that definitely replicates uh, feelings that we get when we think about memories or relationships in our past or friendships or whatever it is, uh, that we tend to forget certain elements and even some of the highs, but we remember those, those moments in the aftermath or those small moments that people might forget because there's something that we attach to them. Yeah, perspective is a really important thing in this film. So most of it is is shot with this that kind of uh, cinematography that you mentioned in in that quote from the RogerEbert.com review. The it's the colors are are relatively muted. It it's in a lot of ways reminiscent of Phantom Thread cinematography, kind of this almost chilly, maybe slightly gauzy um not cold cinematography but it's very clean spare or clean in that way but hog does something really interesting every now and then with this movie is we're watching perhaps a you know a regular conversation at a table between julia and anthony and then there's a cut to a shot of them doing something else, smiling at each other or holding hands. And that shot is on completely different film stock. The The color grade is different. And it's kind of got this grain to it, this, this life to it, uh, maybe a little bit of romance to it that isn't in the, uh, the previous scene at all. And that kind of functions to suggest that whatever Julia feels for Anthony, it's it's genuine. And it's also informed by kind of this idea she thinks she should have of what love should be or what a relationship should be. It's almost like when we get those those grainy shots shot on different stock, it's like we're seeing the movie that she's making in her head about the relationship that she's actually living through. And that's a really interesting way both to characterize her and kind of allow the audience to get inside her head and experience the way that she sees the world. And that's something that Anthony himself expresses to her earlier in the film, that the purpose of a movie isn't necessarily to you know, document a life or to tell a, a, a story about a really interesting person, it's to allow the audience to get inside of an experience and experience it for themselves. And it feels like that philosophy that Anthony mentions then finds its way into the presentation of his relationship with Julia. It's a really subtle touch, but I really like how it is simultaneously a way to build these two characters and allow us to understand them and also allow us to experience uh, the romance with this drug addict that if that weren't there, we would be left completely on the outside wondering, you know, what does she see in this guy? And that I think that, that just by 
switching film stocks, Joanna Hogg does so much to build a world and develop these characters. I, I, I like what you say about the the way that we can almost create a movie from our life. And I, I want to almost dig into that a bit because she is a film student and she, at the very beginning of the film, talks about her idea for a movie. And it doesn't really sound that interesting. I, I guess... You know, most movies probably don't sound that interesting when a person's just kind of being like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to make a movie about an individual who has a bad relationship that they can't get out of, right? And she's speaking to her professors, and they talk about this experience in her life. And they ask her about making a movie outside of her experience. We also know that she's a privileged person. She comes from a family, uh, a family of money. And I almost wish the film would have dug into it a little bit more, but we do get this sense that she is maybe even tethered to this relationship because it's so different from her previous experiences. And it's almost a way of her exploring her art form because she's seeing the world through a character she hasn't you know, seen the world through. So there is that element of the way that we tell our stories, the way that we experience things, and then even the pull to possibly fabricate situations because they do add to our life experience and they can infuse our art. Just kind of touching too on the, on the idea of, of privileged, uh, Tilda Swinton, she plays her mother in this picture and you can tell that her relationship is a little strained, but her mother wants to be there for her and to protect her. And I think for me, one of the most tender moments in the entire film is near the end when her mother is crying because something has happened to Julie. And there's this this almost uh, the sense that she's tried so hard to protect her daughter and yet she couldn't fully do that and how each of us in our own way no matter how protected or how privileged we are do meet the real world at some point so i think those ideas are kind of floating around there and i think they're interesting to kind of explore and like i said maybe even kind of pulling on the idea of oh do we do we ever fabricate stories because we want to tell a story using our experiences. And I, I, I think that happens probably a lot, especially, you know, now on Twitter where, you know, you can create this great story and a lot of people will see it. But the idea of almost creating that in order to infuse our art, I, I think that's a fascinating subject. Yeah. And it does tell us, again, it tells us a lot about uh, Julia in that she, you know, she, she is kind of privileged and she's, self-aware enough to know that she's privileged. She's not just completely wearing blinders, but she is also very consciously trying to get away from that because she's a little bit ashamed of it, and she doesn't think of that as quote-unquote real life. So in a lot of ways, you can explain the attraction she feels for Anthony and the way she stays with him even after his true colors begin to show themselves— almost as a way of, of her subconsciously 
again, trying to get away from this life that is very safe, very controlled, uh, very privileged, and trying to maybe slum it a little bit. And that's something that, especially for a character as young as she is, she's in her early 20s. She hasn't really seen a whole lot of the quote-unquote real world yet. And so, especially since she's aspiring to be an artist, you get the sense that she's idealistic, she wants to experience the real world, and she thinks the real world is anything that is not safe, comfortable, or privileged. And that's a very insightful way to to describe uh, a person of that background. It, it's, it's a way that I kind of recognize in myself as well. You know, I kind of grew up a little bit sheltered myself and, you know, didn't really have a whole lot of difficulties growing up. And there is kind of that impulse when you're in college and you're trying to sort of find an artistic uh, voice or a writing voice, wanting to just not just distance yourself from that, but completely, you know, go in a, in a completely different direction and try to, you know, fake it until you make it. And that's, there's, there's a lot of compassion to the way that Hogg writes that into Julia's character, probably because uh, Joanna Hogg uh, is basing her at least partially on her own life as a young woman. And that's just really, it's, it adds an interesting layer to this characterization. And you're right, too, that that same kind of compassion finds its way into the characterization of the mother, who I we haven't said yet, but Tilda Swinton is so great in this role. It's a very, it's a very minor role. Yeah. She's only in a few scenes, yeah. but she absolutely and nails the part of a mother who's maybe a little bit of a, a little difficult, maybe a little bit uh, interfering at times, but isn't doing it from anything out of other than a sense of wanting her child to be happy, wanting her child to be safe, and just wanting to take care of her. And it's, it's just a, a really great performance, one of many in a pretty uniformly great cast. Yeah, I mean, I think Tom Burke is, I think he's really wonderful here. He's, he's mysterious, but also caring and even hurtful kind of all at once. He's pretentious. He's almost disapproving (laughs) of of Julie's character. He has the most pretentious bathrobe in the history of the world in this movie. It's great. <laughs> but, the, you know, he could also be kind of tender. He, he, he does a fantastic job. And then going back on, on the idea, too, of experience, it reminds me of, I think it's in Lady Bird, where, where she says, I just want something to happen. Like, I just want something to happen. And I found it, too, kind of fun to listen to the uh, – the film students, and they're kind of talking about these stories from a very philosophical perspective and almost losing the story or narrative aspect of films just by just kind of ripping it up and and just digging into these nuts and bolts of art. And then we get the professors who feel more grounded when they talk about film, whether it's Hitchcock or whether it's experience within our lives and how that plays out on screen and the idea of these young people kind of searching for something in the cracks they're kind of searching for more and julia's character just really highlights that search and where that might take someone and then also just the just the comfort or stability that comes with with knowing someone and having a relationship with someone and 
going back to that person because of the memories that you have with them. And I think the film kind of portrays that. And, you know, we mentioned the technical aspects of the film. There's also this sort of layered approach with the filmmaking. There's kind of a, there's a lot in the background. You mentioned Kubrick, the production design and what that kind of says about the movie and what that says about the characters and even the nature of these relationships. And I, you know, Hogg has a fantastic eye and I haven't seen any of her other movies. Um, but she's definitely someone that I really kind of interested in checking out. Yeah. Uh, I'm the same way. And hopefully the, uh, the rumors of her shooting essentially a, a direct sequel or follow-up to this film, which per- presumably draws further on on her own experiences as a young filmmaker. That one is, I believe, in, in pre-production or in production right now. It's got Robert Pattinson reportedly attached. So that'll give us a, a another chance to maybe revisit Hogg's filmmaking and become more familiar with her work. But for now, listeners, that's our review of the first souvenir, The Souvenir. Um, if you have a chance to see this film, it is streaming, uh, available for streaming on most platforms. You can rent it off of Amazon or off of iTunes. If you had a chance to do that, or if you saw it during its theatrical run, we would love to get your thoughts on what Hogg is doing in this film. Just tweet us at cbelievepod or just email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You know the drill. And we too know the drill, Wade, because it's now time for the part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television or film. What do you have for us this week? You know, Kevin, I was I was thinking about Chinese cinema and specifically even Hong Kong cinema. And there is a film that I saw not too long ago called Chungking Express. It's from 1994, directed by Wong Kar Wai. And this is one of those movies that deals with the nature of relationships and the entrance and exit of relationships. So it's connected in in some way to the farewell, but also the souvenir. And I I thought about this movie a good bit before I made my, I guess, developed my take on it. It's cut into two sections, and they follow, in the first section, uh, Y follows a character who just had a breakup, and he's experiencing that. And looking to see what's new. Is there a possibility for, for something else? Then the second half cuts to another character who also has experienced a breakup, uh, but he meets someone he might care deeply for in the future. And I love the fun that goes into this movie, the soundtrack that goes into this movie, but also the sense that even in the midst of these relationship difficulties, there's there's hope for something. And sometimes those relationships, they work out and they last a long time. And maybe they're here just to give us hope for the future. And, uh, you know, Wong Kar Wai does a fantastic job of kind of exploring that. So it's a film that I really, really like. It's actually shot up now to my favorite film of 1994, uh, Chung Express. Yeah, that's a, a really good pick. I like that film quite a bit. And it's, it's, that film and In the Mood for Love are both 
just yeah. masterpieces from, from Wong Kar Wai. I've not gotten as deep into his filmography as I would have liked. I've seen, I think, those two and My Blueberry Nights, which was a little bit of a disappointment, uh, an English language film that didn't seem to really uh, hum on all cylinders like those other two films. But that's obviously just a small fraction of his career, and I definitely need to check out some more. My recommendation for this week also comes from China, actually. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you did as well. Mine is from the year before Chungking Express came out, 1993, and it's Farewell, My Concubine, directed by Chen Kaige. Um, this is a film that probably a lot of our listeners are already familiar with. It had quite a bit of success over here stateside. It was nominated for Cinematography and Best Foreign Film Oscars, and it also won the Palme d'Or at Cannes that year. So it's pretty well known, but it's no less good for that. It's a film that spans a uh, significant portion of the 20th century in China, in pre-revolutionary China up through the Cultural Revolution. And it follows uh, two boys who grow up together. They end up uh, becoming opera performers in the, you know, the, the traditional Chinese opera that was a cultural institution before the Cultural Revolution and uh, suffered quite a bit during the the unrest that accompanied that revolution it's kind of an epic story it takes it it takes in such a large swath of 20th century chinese history and also really brings you into this entire world of chinese opera that it's kind of sumptuous just for those reasons but the central relationship is just so poignant and goes to such unexpected places that you really do feel like you've gone on kind of an odyssey by the end of this film. Um, I definitely recommend any listeners who who want kind of to get a, a lot of that uh, good old like visually luscious Chinese cinema into their eyeballs. This has them covered in spades. So check it out. It's uh, Farewell, My Concubine from 1993. I have not seen that film, but uh, I really appreciate your your description of it, it's something like I need to check out. I feel like I'm saying that a lot recently. Like, oh, I haven't seen that film, but I need to check it out. And the list is going longer and well, longer and longer. You know, you know, our our dirty little secret with this recommendation segment at the end of the episodes, you know, we kind of say we're recommending it to our listeners, but we're base, or at least I'm kind of just enjoying doing it because it means that I get to get all of your uh, good recommendations to add to my watch list <laughs> and vice versa. So, you know, yeah. really it's, it's all just completely selfish. It's just, a, it's, it's a way for me to be like, Hey Kevin, I think you need to see this movie, but I don't want to be direct about it. So I'm going to tell my listeners, our listeners that they need to see the yeah. movie and maybe you'll watch it too. Yeah. Hint, 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 hint listeners. That's the end of this episode. We want to encourage you to rate and review us on iTunes. We really do appreciate that. Just search for Seeing and Believing on iTunes, and you can give us a star rating. You can type out a review. Both of those are extremely helpful. We want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden, my co-host is Kevin McLenathan, and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. 
Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.